these lungs, each one of them is $150,000. Mm. The heart's the same price, pretty much, sometimes more. Uh, corneas alone, those are just tissues. They're not even organs, but they're worth $15,000 apiece. Okay, uh, the two kidneys, each one of them is $65,000, $70,000 these days. The liver's easily $100,000, easily more. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Ethan Gutman, an award-winning China analyst and human rights investigator. He's the author of The Slaughter, a book that documents first-hand evidence of forced organ harvesting in China. The essence of what I do is I want to talk to people who've been inside, uh, as I say, to the gates of hell, yeah. and have smelled the sulfur. Research for his next book took him to Kazakhstan, where he spoke to Uyghurs who'd been detained in camps in Xinjiang. The concern is for the people you talk to. They're the ones who can just simply die. They will disappear, even if they're in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is an authoritarian state. It's under China's thumb. They do China's bidding most of the time. So if I talk to them, I'm like an infected person bringing in a plague or something. I mean, it's, it's very dangerous. And the whole point was that I had to come in and nobody really should know that I'm there. I'm Lee Hall, and this is British Thought Leaders. Ethan Gutman, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you. Your book, The Slaughter, um, is uh, approaching its 10th anniversary <laughs> next year. Um, can you tell our viewers a bit about what the book is about? The story is incredible. Sure, and I'm, you know, it's it, when you say it's approaching its 10-year anniversary. It makes me feel simultaneously old and long in tooth. And uh, all these various mixed feelings come to me. Uh, but the point is this. Uh, the uh, I'm supposed to really have another book out because that's my tradition is every seven years, put a book out. Mm -hmm. Take two years off, make a snack in the kitchen, spend five years writing, <laughs> researching, and, and then and do, do a book. Uh, so I'm a little late on the new one. Uh, three years late, to be exact. But yeah, this book has had remarkable longevity. Um, it just came out in Japan this year. Uh, I toured Japan. Uh, I had lines of people that I had to sign and take a selfie with, and mm. you know the very Japanese process of uh, selling a book. Or uh, actually picked up a, a publisher in Japan for the new book. New book. Uh, so yeah, it's it's had a, a tremendous impact. Uh, surprising impact. And it's one of the reasons why I think uh, uh, books are still valid, even in this day and age of the internet. Yeah. Uh, books are becoming incredibly rare. People's attention span has shrunk accordingly. We're, uh, at this point, AI has a better attention span than we do. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there's two reasons why that book is held up. One is that it I tried to put the human back in human rights. I tried to write something that was, in fact, um, a way of making history come alive again. And people have had to do that again and again, reinvent history, reinvent the way we write history. Uh, uh, the Guns of August is an example by Barbara Tuckman. That book is not perfect, but it still reads almost like a thriller, a, a sort of an impending doom story of, you know, here's, here's the beginnings of the First World War. Here's the breakdown of various controls and structures, right? And here's this beautiful August at the same time. I mean, it's it's evocative. And uh, I, I, again, I don't really like her style that much, but it doesn't matter. She changed the way we 
talk about history a little bit mm -hmm. and, and so forth. And I tried to do that in this book as well. Um, you know, the books that had come out about Falun Gong, because this, this book is centrally about the Falun Gong and the struggle between the Chinese state and Falun Gong, that conflict. And the books that had come out were terrible. I'm sorry, I said that, not terrible. They weren't so good. Uh, they were, <laughs> um, they either spent a tremendous amount of time trying to sort of examine Falun Gong as a religion, which is fine, that's a legitimate thing to do, except what exactly gives you that privilege? Do you have some special antenna that picks up the meaning of the universe? If you don't have that, then perhaps you shouldn't be writing such a book. Because any religion can be attacked. There are many ways to attack every single religion that's ever, that the human beings have ever adhered to, any one of them. Uh, you can find sort of various things that look out of context, look weak or strange or, or contradictory. So I thought that was a really bad approach. And I said, the, the approach to take here is to look at people's actions, not what they say, mm -hmm. not even the texts but to look at how they behave. What do they do? Especially in China, where words are largely propaganda. They're kind of a kabuki play. And they're very hard to interpret. And they often don't mean what... You can see where I'm going with this. Yeah. And the, the actions were very striking. The actions both on the Chinese Communist Party side and on the Falun Gong side. Uh, so this book was never intended to actually be about organ harvesting. That is simply the... You know, I shot a hole in the barn, I painted the target around that hole, okay, <laughs> all right? Because it was a way to move the book. And I did feel like I'd stumbled into something important that Kilgore and Matus had already stumbled into with their 2006 report, Bloody Harvest. Okay. People were saying this is a new form of evil. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what that form of evil is? Yeah, I mean, organ harvesting is, uh, if we go back to the Holocaust, uh, now we know, you know, you can go to uh, Auschwitz and you can, you can actually see the rooms full of, uh, where, which used to hold gold fillings. They don't really show that anymore. There's now that's boots and suitcases and various and, uh, hunks of hair and so forth. But human beings were not worth really that much. There were the fillings and the teeth. There were um, hair that could be used to stuff mattresses, that kind of thing. Uh, what has happened is we've discovered an amazing life changing, I mean, a life extension, which is to replace organs in human beings. And this is absolutely miraculous. I mean, uh, I had a cousin, for example, who had a, a congenital lung problem. And he was able to get an addict's lung. They flew, he flew down to New York. He had that transplant. And I went and visited him in the hospital. It was one of the happiest moments of my life. Uh, you know, seeing him and he's pulling up the shirt and showing me the scar where they've uh, put in this new lung. And now, now it ended all, all, all ended badly after he got his new lung. That's another story. And that has nothing to do with the lung itself. The problem here is that people will pay very good money for this, especially wealthy people. And so the average human being can be worth about easily half a million dollars. Let's say they're of good health. Let's say you're about 28 years old. Not me. We're not talking about me here. We're talking maybe about somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we're talking about you or somebody, cameraman or something. Uh, the point is, if you are, you don't smoke, you don't drink, uh, 
I think you probably leave a, lead a pretty good life. Uh, you're worth a lot. I mean, these lungs, each one of them is $150,000. Mm. The heart's the same price, pretty much, sometimes more. Uh, corneas alone, those are just tissues. They're not even organs, but they're worth 15000 apiece. Okay. Uh, the two kidneys, each one of them is 65000 70000 these days. The liver is easily 100000 easily more. And, uh, and you figure in some other things, like the kind of tips that might be paid to get this these organs very quickly to get your, your new organ and very to expedited mm. organ service. And uh, you're talking about another 10, 20,000, 30,000 right there. Uh, now, the average Chinese person in China does not pay that. They pay about 10% of that. But they will wait six months. They will wait half a year, yeah. something like that. Significant amounts of time. We're talking about fairly expedited organs. and uh, uh, But we're talking about and this is where I differ with some other people. We are talking about the best organs in the world. There is no better place to go. I don't have a spleen. I, I, it was removed in the 1960s after I was hit by a motorcycle as a kid. Uh, that's what they did back then. They just removed things. Uh, China is the only place I could go to get a spleen. Now, it'd be a really awful if I got caught getting a spleen in China. That'd look really bad, wouldn't it? So uh, it, 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 the point is that we are looking at a fairly large profit range. Mm -hmm. That's part of it. But you have to put together the fact that, well, then why isn't it all over the world? Because it really isn't. Okay, yes, there are some cases here and there. In Brazil, there's been some cases, there's been cases in Egypt, some in the Philippines. But they are tiny, teeny, tiny, India too, teeny, tiny cases. And usually it's a, kid, a single kidney. Somebody's selling off a single kidney to make, um, maybe get a kid through school. Who knows? Mm -hmm. This is different. These are enemies of the Chinese state. The Chinese Communist Party has deemed them to be enemies of the state. And uh, more than that, the age group they prefer is 28 years old, sometimes 29 but right in that range of 25 to 35, as close as you can get to 28, your organs are developed, you've stopped growing, and you were at the peak of health. And one of the most interesting things that was discovered actually by both Falun Gong researchers and, and also my colleague, Matt Robertson, uh, was these doctors' accounts of very successful transplants. These are just Chinese accounts of them. And they'd often say, you know, they'd give the range, and they'd say, this was a 28-year-old male. Uh, this is the organ donor. And 28-year-old uh, male uh, died of heart failure. Wow. Nobody dies of heart failure yeah. at 28. Usually, if there's a congenital problem of some sort, it shows up earlier than that. Okay, it's significantly earlier. Uh, it shows up right in adolescence, uh, if not before. Uh, people die of heart failure maybe in their 30s sometimes. Mm. Okay. Nobody dies in 28. <laughs> it's just it's, it's as rare as, uh, it's, it's a very highly unusual case. But we had countless cases of that, really? 28 years old. What kind of numbers were we talking in terms of transplants? Well, that is the book that sort of followed this one, which I wrote with Kilgore and Matus. 
we joined forces, even though we didn't completely agree about all the numbers, uh, we nonetheless could work. We said, what, what's the transplant volume of China? And we had a very good research team who did almost a superhuman effort going into Chinese documents. And they didn't just scrape the internet. I mean, they went into Nurses Weekly. They went into all kinds of sources. They went into dissertations that had, were lying around. And what we were able to determine was, and I pretty much did those numbers, so I stand by them, uh, was uh, that it's about 60,000 a year, 60,000 transplants a year at a minimum, and up to 100,000 transplants a year. Now, I was actually coming up with 120,000, but there is a tendency, and I've lived in China and uh, for a significant period of time, and there is a tendency to sort of say, if you catch a fish in China, you sort of say it's this big. It's actually this big. Okay. Uh, so I kind of lowered arbitrarily lowered the, the upper estimate. But I'm very confident about the lower estimate of 60,000 a year. I want to make sure that you understand something. This is very important because this is a recently when this mistake was made again. That does not mean 60,000 people died. Right. You have, you know, six organs, very yeah. viable organs. Uh, so, do, well, maybe I don't have any, but you, you, you've got those <laughs> six. So that could go, you could imagine at least getting three valid organs out of you and rushing them to the people uh, for transplant. You know, it's, 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 we don't know. We're not sitting there in China with a clipboard. I think it's very important to say what we don't know. But I think it's also reasonable to say that we do know that this would indicate at least about 25,000 people, 30,000 people being harvested a year, approximately that. Uh, it could be as low as 20,000. So we do know that the size is considerable. Uh, and we also, one of the things we were able to show in that uh, study, this was just, the study has a very anonymous name. We purposely made it as um, kind of chilly as possible. Mm -hmm. We called it uh, Bloody Harvest, the Slaughter, and Update. <laughs> so, okay. Gotcha. And we literally, uh, we fought about this. A lot of people wanted us. They said, why can't you put an executive summary? And we said, no. Again and again, we said, no. Why did we do that? Because we wanted journalists to have to wade into that material. That is a 700-page report. It has well over 2,000 footnotes, almost all from the mainland, okay, Chinese sources. Uh, we felt if, a, if somebody wants to write about this, they have to go in, okay? They have to at least get their feet wet with the material. And uh, I've never regretted that. It was actually a, a very interesting thing. How do you go about researching something like this? I can't imagine there's that many people who are confident to, to talk uh, about what's happened. There are two ways to go about it. And um, although I do both, uh, I think you can say that some people have simply scraped the internet, gone into the medical reports and so forth. and. Uh, the people who are known for that are particularly uh, David Matus, who's concentrated on, on that, especially in the early days. Certainly Jacob Levy, Dr. Jacob Levy of Israel. He's a heart surgeon at Sheba Heart Center. Uh, very, very excellent surgeon and uh, well thought of. And uh, Matt Robertson, who's a friend and associate of mine. Uh, they've all worked on that side. And I think Torsten Trey has also done a bit of work on that. The other way of doing it, and this is what I specialize in, and uh, apparently I've become 
sort of the main guy who does this at this point, uh, the main guy who does field research, is to go in and talk to witnesses. To talk to people who were in camps, in labor camps, uh, who were in long-term detention centers, black jails, uh, and so forth. People who were detained. They see a lot of things. They see people disappear. And they see blood tests. They see the timing of the blood tests. They see uh, people being selected in some way. So these are people who've escaped to, say, the UK or US and things like that. That's right. Well, these days I'm having to travel much further to get to those people. But for this book, it was actually not that hard. I mean, we did it in uh, witnesses in Canada, in the US, in the UK, and right here in London, uh, all over Europe, uh, Australia, Taiwan. Oh, Hong Kong, of course. Back then, you could still yeah. do things out of Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, Hong Kong was a major base for us back then. Uh, Jaya Gibson, a practitioner friend of mine, went to Dharamsala and interviewed Tibetans there, uh, Tibetan refugees. Uh, my researcher, uh Li Mish, who was a researcher and sometimes fixer and translator, uh, he went to, um, well, he actually tried to go to Dharamsala himself and was uh, taken back to Taiwan in, right. in uh, uh, Thailand. Oh, in Hong Kong, I'm sorry. But he was actually detained in Hong Kong. But basically, things were a lot easier mm. back when I was writing this book. It was not hard to get to these witnesses. A lot of, uh, strangely, uh, a lot of Falun Gong did get through the cracks back then. Now, partly that was because Falun Gong was a system where they were arresting people throughout the country. It wasn't, it wasn't in one geographical area. Right. Uh, and so they were slipping out, and they were getting passports. And sometimes they were escaping through Burma and, so, you know, this kind of thing. So they were coming on the, the soft underbelly of China, if you like. Mm. Uh, some people were just getting on a plane uh, with tourists and going to Singapore or Malaysia. Uh, and uh, there were, in fact, a lot of witnesses to speak to. And uh, back then, I was able to interview about 100 witnesses for this book, um, 50 who'd been in camps. The other 50 were sort of people who had relatives or friends or whatever, and they had stories, and they were less interesting to me. Mm. It's always the essence of what I do is I want to talk to people who've been inside, uh, as I say, to the gates of hell, yeah. and it smelled the sulfur. The one I heard that was particularly interesting was about this Japanese man who worked for the Yakuza. That was just recently. This is an example. It's interesting, you know. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, whenever you sort of... you ever tracked an animal, Lee? No. Okay, I have. I had to track a horse that escaped from our fields in Vermont one time. Mm. And I had to go all over the mountain. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing thing that because, of course, this was something human beings did for millions of years, mm. probably. And, but I was tracking it and I didn't know, is this really right? Am I really following something here? Now you see this little indentation on the leaves. You see this little place where the, a, a twig was broken. But you know, every once in a while you see something that was clear as anything, there's a horse's hoof. That's what this was like. It's just every once in a while you run into one of those. And I remember when I tracked the horse, I was going along sort of following this thing. And I said, there's a horse's hoof. And then I heard him snort. 
And there he was. Okay. You did get him in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He didn't run away or anything. He was happy to get caught. Um, but they're not happy to get caught in this case. But here's the thing. So a Yakuza guy. His name is Cat. Uh, that's what he calls himself. That's his pen name. Actually, Epic Times interviewed him first. But I kind of dismissed the interview at the time because they had one thing which they hadn't explained very well. But let me just tell you the story straight up because it's a very simple story. Cat was a Yakuza. He's a gangster, really, in, in Japan. And he had a chieftain. They called him chieftains. And the chieftain had a bad liver and was sick. And they said, okay, well, obviously the thing to do is to take him to China because you can get a liver pretty quickly there. To the armed police hospital in, in uh, Beijing. And there's four of them now. But the, back then there was one. And that's where they took him. Now... He had a little problem when they got there. One of the things you have to do is uh, with a liver is you have to up the health a little bit before you transplant to successfully. You want to get that liver working just to give it a little push and then put the new one in. The way you do that is through something called albumin. And uh, albumin, albumin is, uh, they had it at the hospital, but it was counterfeit. It wasn't working. Now, that was the missing part of the story because that made absolute sense to me. I was living in China not that far before 2007, and that was quite plausible because you're always using counterfeit drugs in China. Right. Uh, so Cat goes and buys a bunch of album and boxes and boxes, brings it over to Beijing, delivers it to the hospital, checks in with the, his chieftain, and goes to the toilet and comes back and goes to the wrong room, room next to the chieftain's. Mm. Anybody can make that mistake. Uh, the, there's a man in the bed, his manacle, tied down. Uh, his tendons have been cut, two wrists, two ankles. He's under sedation. Cat uh, goes, finds the uh, chief surgeon, director of surgery, and says, who's the guy next to the chieftain? Who is that? He says, oh, that's the donor. Don't worry about him. Well, why is his wrists, why are his tendons cut? Oh, so he won't run away. Well, who is he? He says, oh, he's a very bad criminal. Oh, what kind of criminal? A terrorist. What kind of terrorist? All and gone. So, did Cat care? No, Cat's Yakuza. He didn't know anything about Falun Gong. He didn't really care. Mm. He was just like, whatever. Uh, but he quit the Yakuza. Actually, his chieftain died in the hospital because he ordered a bunch of Sichuan food. His liver exploded. That, <laughs> okay, because he was feeling so much better because of the album. You see how these things work. Um, and, you know, Cat became a writer. started writing books about how, to, how he'd ripped off the international financial system, how you could do it this way or you couldn't do it this way. I mean, but he's actually a respected writer considered an ethical, reasonably ethical guy at this point. Uh, and I found him very credible when I talked to him. And, uh, you know, he's, this is, it's one little story. And we have others. We have others of, you know, people who've run into this again and again. So again, it's like tracking that, you suddenly see that, that shape, that horseshoe shape, and you know you're on the right trail. Uh, Little clues left here and there. Are there any others that particularly oh, stick in your mind? Enver Totti. He's a Uyghur doctor in 2000, uh, sorry, 1995. 
uh, he was told to go to an execution ground, with, put together a little surgical team, go to an execution ground outside of Urumqi in Xinjiang. And this is the political prisoner side of the, the mountain where they do the executions. And he was, they, he could, they said, when you hear the shots, come around the hill. You hear the shots, they come around the hill, they're pointing that guy. And he's thinking they want me to, this guy's still alive. Mm -hmm. They want me to fix Same. him up. Yeah. And that's not what they wanted. They said, take out the liver, take out two kidneys, do it now as quickly as possible. He didn't use anesthesia. The man was still alive. He was bleeding the entire time. Uh, he's talked about this again many times. It's, it's hard. He doesn't like to talk about it. Mm. Uh, but Enver was aware that that man could have lived. He'd been shot on this side of the chest. He was in shock. But, but he could have fixed it up. He mm. killed the man. People don't confess things like this very easily. I know Enver very well. I mean, this was the first time he was being interviewed on this and then uh, on camera, he really kind of broke down. This is broken every medical rule. It's mainly the, the simplest one of all. First of all, do no harm. Uh, I believe in medical science. I am here today because I have a spleen. I mean, because my spleen was removed and that saved my life. I'm here, I had a brain tumor, okay? <laughs> You know, I've had, you know, some very serious medical problems. And uh, every time I've had my faith, you know, in, in Western medical science renewed every time. Uh, but this has gone in a, a terrible direction. And make no mistake, I'm not saying this is the Holocaust. Uh, but it is, uh, it, it's not the Holocaust. It's a slow motion genocide, if you like because I think uh, Torsten Trey called it uh, cold genocide, whatever. But we, what it's done to the medical world, the potential corruption of it, is uh, really a major issue, one that absolutely can't be pushed aside anymore. I mean, uh, David Matus said it was a virus. I think this is very true. He said, it's, it's, organ harvesting is a virus, it's, and it can spread. It can spread very easily to other countries. And we actually saw some of that, because for a brief time, ISIS was the other country which was had a state-sponsored organ harvesting program. Now, it was a lot more informal. They just had a couple of doctors traveling around when they, they you know, took over a town and raped some of the women or turned them into slaves. They'd also kill some men and uh, women and, 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 and harvest their organs. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the hotel facilities for you know, fancy organ tourists from Saudi Arabia or Russia or America or, you know, are very good, uh, not comparable to China. But, but that's an indication of, that a virus like this will slip. We know that the Chinese were teaching organ harvesting techniques to Vietnamese doctors. We know there has been contact, or at least there's been an imitation of this program in North Korea, possibly on children uh, in some cases. I don't believe the size is comparable to what, we, what we've seen in China. I don't believe the infrastructure's there yet, yet. But this is what happens if we don't 
push it now. Uh, at the same time, this is a problem that's been long term. It's been a, it's been a, it's grown over many years. This is much what I describe in this book and in my next book as well, is how the uh, the continuity of this program, uh, and so we don't expect to defeat it immediately all at once. I am not an activist. I'm somebody who brings out evidence. And I write about it. And when I get upset about something or angry about it or something, there's a reason. And I don't, I, you know, I do not fly off the handle about every bad thing that China does. Uh, but this is different. This is something that was really pushed aside for a long time uh, on the grounds that the evidence wasn't there. And of course, the evidence is there. Looking at this issue of the doctors, mm. obviously they're working for the state and they're carrying out this organ harvesting. You mean on the so, Chinese side? No, yeah. Not obviously on the Taiwanese side. No. Yeah. No. So, so how did the medical community around the world react to this? Well, that's, a, that's almost a whole story in itself. I probably have, I'm not going to spend too much time in the new book on that, but um, disastrously, really. I mean, uh, in... They, they reacted like a bunch of rookies. I mean, I'm sorry to put it this way, but, you know, I, I've, you know I, I, one of the things I did in China was I was a business consultant. And, you know, we basically did lobbying with the Chinese government, okay? You know, American business and European business, British business comes in and they want to make something happen. Well, you've got to get around the restrictions. Mm. And the way you get around the restrictions is by going to different personalities within the Politburo system and John Nanhai and, you know, kind of yeah. whining and dining them a little bit, you know, various things. The doctors came in and didn't do any of that. Basically, you had a man named Francis Delmonico, a very nice guy, surgeon and uh, Massachusetts general, I believe, no, or Harvard. And he uh, said, we're going to fix this up. He basically came to China. Now, the reason why they did that was because they'd already been going to countries in Africa, which they'd been doing bad transplants or using criminals for as, as transplant sources and mm -hmm. so forth. And so they said, well, we'll go in and do the same thing in China. It's like, no, China's different. China's much bigger than you, you know, any of these states you've been dealing with. They didn't understand that. A lot of people make this mistake with China. But very few of them come in without any kind of a fixer. I'm not talking about me. I don't care if it was me or some Chinese person or whatever. You really need somebody to help you negotiate. These are the best negotiators in the world, okay? Hats off. Sometimes the Arabs in the old city of Jerusalem are pretty good too. But, you know, honorary mention of the Turks. But honestly, the Chinese are the best. They really are outstanding at negotiation. And they're very good with flattery and a lot of other things. But the main thing they're good at is sort of, uh, you know, in the mainland particularly, is a kind of deception. So the message, you come into China and they're going to say, you came to the right place, number one. Number two, we're the reformers. You see, anybody else would have uh, told on you or it would have been a problem, but we're the actual good guys. And there are some bad guys in the party. They're hardliners. And, you know, we're trying to advance China too, just like you are. So the important thing is, Three, don't embarrass us. What is embarrassment? Do not mention Falun Gong. Do not mention Uyghurs. Do not mention Tibetans. Do not mention House Christians. 
Okay, we're only going to talk about prisoners here. Prisoners that have been duly uh, sentenced, given a death sentence, and they will be put to death. That we can talk about. You can talk about that publicly, and that we can try to reform on. But of course, you know, we're trying to reform the whole thing. Well, it's a lie, because they're not really trying to reform the whole thing. And they're not really the reformers. It's a shell game. It's a deception. It's uh, These are the same people making the big money. Okay, Not all of the money. A lot of that money is everybody wets their beak in China. Everybody says, follow the money in China. No, you can't even do that. You can't do it. It's not a system that works that way. It's a tax evasion system. So everybody announces if you make a profit, it announces the laws and so forth. And so that's a, you can't really follow the money. But we do know that the that both everybody from the to the janitor who cleans up the mess and to the crematorium staff, okay, to the guard gets a special meal, something, okay, every time one of these transplants is performed, mm -hmm. I mean extractions. Okay. So the money's all over the place. But a lot of it goes to the same people who they were directly negotiating with. That's a problem. <laughs> and it's not just that. It's not even uh, the money. Let's put it a different way. Let's be a little more sympathetic here. You know, I got a call from an Epic Times reporter, a very good guy. I don't, I'm not going to mention his name here, but he's a smart guy. And, uh, and I'm not talking about Matt Robertson or anything. Uh, but some other guy. And I, I liked him, and we often would sort of check with each other about various issues called me up and said, Ethan, look at these statistics. What are they? Oh, you know, these are all transplant doctors, Chinese transplant doctors, who've uh, committed suicide. They jumped out of windows, mostly jumped out of windows. You know, look at this, very unusual. And it was true. They were highly unusual numbers. And um, I said, well, what do you make of it? And he said, well, he said, you know, it's just nice to know that people still have a conscience. And I said, they didn't jump out the window, they were pushed. You know, it's like they were given a gun and told, your family goes or you do. Point the gun to your head and finish yourself off. Now, I don't know why they were given that gun. Maybe they wanted to tell. Okay, one of the arguments that people have come up in opposition was like, well, why haven't more doctors come out in the line? It's like, really, do you remember all those people who came out of the Nazi concentration camps who worked in them? during the Second World War and when, you know, wanted to tell you about it? Because I don't remember them. I don't remember one of them coming out. Not a single doctor, commandant, anything. Okay? One picture got smuggled out of a bunch of naked women about to go into a pit. Okay? And everybody said it was a lie. Okay? This is, this is what we're dealing with. And those people who have any idea that they're going to talk about this issue they're never going to make it. They're going to make it out the window, and they're not going to make it to us. Uh, so I think that's very important to recognize. What happened was Francis Delmonico went to China, and he, as he said, because he told me this in person, we had lunch together. We didn't digest our food very well, but that's another story. Uh, but, you know, he said, um, Ethan, I've looked into the eyes of the surgeons of China, you know, the young surgeons. They want to do the right thing. And I don't question that at all. Uh, I think that's always true in China. You find people who really want to do the right thing. And I even think the Epoch Times reporter's point is not completely off. Although I think he's missing the, the sort of the context of 
he's sort of seeing the world through a little bit of rose-colored glasses here. You know, there's these situations. People do get addicted to the money. They get addicted to the prestige, the red carpet, uh, and the power. There's a tremendous amount of feeling, a rush of power when you take one life out of a human being and put it in another. I mean, we we know that that rush exists because uh, one of the, the top policemen in China gave a speech about that directly. He was Bo Shilai's Wang Li Jun. He ran his own organ harvesting center in Jilin City. And he said that because he was given an award for a new lethal injection method. And he said, and the, the translation's not perfect, but it's not bad. It said it was, it's soul stirring when you see one, the life pass from one to another. Mm. It's moving. And I think it is probably on a number of levels. So that's a, each time the, the, the Epic Times reporter and uh, Francis Delmonico had different kind of rose-colored Joe glasses, but they had rose-colored glasses on. Delmonico seeing the sort of, He's seeing a, a young China. I've seen the future, and then it's China. This is something we that used to be said about the Soviet Union. Uh, and that was also a period where people had very, very positive feelings about China. So basically, we were told in 2012, just be quiet for a while. Let them do their work. He's the head of the Transplantation Society. It's the most revered society of transplant doctors in the world. Well. Let them do their work. Let's see what happens. And I even felt, okay, you never know. Sometimes you go in for, you know, when Obama did his apology tour all over the world about America's role in the world. I said, well, you know, what? how much does it cost? You know, I don't know. Go ahead. Give it a try. Maybe it'll work. It didn't work. It's okay. Things don't always work. The problem was that once they'd committed themselves to that, when the Chinese announced they were ending uh when they announced that they were going to end the exec, ex, using executed prisoners as a source, they became triumphant. Mm. And that is when the Vatican got involved. Bishop Sarando of the Vatican at this point was being used because the, the Vatican, because the Pope wanted to make a separate deal over bishops in China. And this, the organ harvesting issue was standing in his way. And so they all chose to just simply believe it. And they even did a tour of transplant hospitals, a victory tour, kind of. And uh, they brought along uh, some of their sycophants. Uh, one guy in particular, uh, Campbell Fraser, who is not a doctor. He's not, he's not really an investigator. He's a kind of second-rate academic in an obscure Australian university. And he, uh, every camera that was pointed at him from the mainland he used it to denounce Falun Gong. Right. Uh, to me, that is one of the lowest points, one of the lowest points in recent medical history. He was part of their entourage, and they wouldn't even control him. This is disgusting propaganda. It's bigoted propaganda. It's outrageous. Uh, and he would say, Falun Gong are liars, and blah, blah, blah. He would go, all this stuff, and uh, I don't want to get into that, go too far on that, but he, he really he was a bullock. And it really looked like, well, the medical world's never coming back. And that was, 
kind of what pushed our 2016 report, Kilgore made us and me. Mm. And it's also what pushed me to move, keep moving on this issue. Uh, you know, I'm not a Falun Gong practitioner, as I always pointed out, I'm as religious as a cabbage, but I do share one thing very in common with Falun Gong practitioners. I am stubborn. I do not like to be told you can't do this. I don't like to be told that issue's over. Uh, and uh, I will keep working on it. And, uh, you know, I, I get along very well with a lot of Falun Gong practitioners who did, who were activists or uh, researchers who had the same attitude. Uh, it was very important. And again, we kept seeing that hoof, that imprint of the hoof. Uh, and what happened, events changed everything, as usual. The two things happened. One is that uh, Matt Robertson and Jacob Levy came out with a report. Well, we knew that they were still doing at least, the Chinese were claiming at least 40,000 transplants by now per year. So they're not really that different from us. We're saying 60,000, they're saying 40,000. It's like, fine. You know, they were moving towards our numbers. Mm. But they were also claiming, well, they're now doing all voluntary donations from Chinese citizens. Well, that sounded, you could do it. Except there were two problems. One was that they were basically saying to the Chinese press, uh, Huang Jiefu, who was the master of ceremonies at Chinese organ harvesting, was saying, yes, uh, condemned prisoners can still donate their organs. Don't worry. So one thing was being said to the Chinese press, which was completely different than what was being reported in AFP mm. and Reuters and AP and so forth. Uh, the other problem was that Levy and Robertson came out with a study showing, and, and Raymond Hind, a statistician, UK statistician, showing that the curves of voluntary donations were perfect parabolic curves and were based on equations, very simple ones. Now the chances of actual voluntary donations coming in in a perfect parabolic curve mm. are a million to one. It's impossible. Uh, we never see that. Only in you know, only in some sort of certain physical processes do we actually see a, a perfect parabolic curve. Never in human behavior ever. That ended that. Right. And they, 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 that was a peer-reviewed study. It took them a long time to finally get it out there, but uh, in medical journal and, and so forth. Uh, so those two pieces of evidence were very strong, but we were still missing. And they came out with another study uh, showing that live organ harvesting had been taking place at least till 2015 when the Chinese claimed that they'd suddenly reformed. Mm. Um, really, after that, the... You can't scrape the internet because there's nothing there to scrape. There's all the information's gone, disappeared. And it's not even on the Wayback Machine at this point. Mm. Uh, but there was an event during this time after 2015. That's when the Uyghurs suddenly become the new focus of the transplant system. And we know that because partly because of 2013. In 2013, it was just before I put my book out and I was able to get it into the book at the last minute. Minghui is a, a spiritual newspaper in a sense that operates for Falun Gong practitioners around the world. 
and it has both, you know, it, it has spiritual content and so forth. It's not really for outsiders, but it has a lot of interesting information in it for those who care to read it. And, and one of the stories was about six provinces in China where suddenly the police were coming to people's homes, Falun practitioners' homes, banging on the door, sometimes just opening it, and then administering a blood test and a DNA cheek swab. Now, these were people who were not in prison. They're not in trouble with the law anymore. They're just known to be Falun Gong practitioners. Right. At the time, I thought it was a scare tactic. I was wrong. It really wasn't a scare tactic. They were actually starting to run out of Falun Gong at the appropriate age group. They were they'd, the they'd exhausted it. Right. They had exhausted the 28-year-olds, if you like. And they were starting to look around. They were struggling. We know that they were starting to use Tibetans, or they had been even as early as 2003. We know they used some house Christians, specifically uh, Eastern Lightning. I'd, I'd pick that up in my, my witnesses' accounts. I mean, people would talk about this. But this was new. And immediately after that, 2014, you start getting these health checks in, in Xinjiang of the Uyghurs. Uh, by 2016, you had the camps. And that's when you had complete radio silence suddenly from the medical community mm. because they were close enough. I mean, I won't say they knew very much about China. Or maybe they didn't learn about China. Maybe they had. But they were close enough to the coalface to realize, oh, God, something's gone wrong. Oh, dear. Maybe we made a mistake. Now, you know, everybody who gets involved in China has sort of Kissinger syndrome. They don't want to sort of ever say they were wrong. I've never had a problem with it. I've always been the kind of the guy who would sort of say, look, if somebody comes along who's a real reformer in China, kind of a Gorbachev figure, uh, I would recognize it. I would not be the kind of guy who would say that, no, no, it's a trick. I wouldn't do that. But I've never seen that guy. I've, I've, what I've seen is a lot of continuity in the party over time. And uh, in this case, it was very obvious what was going on. Things we had did have an effect. The Transplantation Society had an effect. Kilgore made us, Gutman, Levy, Robertson, we all had an effect. We had made things difficult for China, okay, uh, for the Chinese transplant system. And they decided to rationalize it. And the way they rationalized it was this. You can receive organs in the east coast of China because that's where people prefer to go. Okay, to Beijing, Tianjin, Shanghai, Guangzhou, you know, Shenzhen. Okay, these are where people want to go. Maybe Dalian. Okay, uh, but the source is going to be in Xinjiang. That is roped off from the rest of China. It is the most surveilled area of the world today. Nothing comes close. Nowhere in the world comes close to the surveillance in in place in that country. You. Uh, had and still probably have about a million in the camps. Right. At one point, uh, the State Department was estimating between 800,000 to 3 million in the camps. These are spectacular numbers. Mm. The population of, of Xinjiang is not that big. It's estimated to be maybe 15 million. I mean, some the Chinese estimated even lower, but we believe that's probably, figures probably wrong. Uh, again, we're not there with a clipboard. But it's pretty obvious what's going on. But you needed someone to prove it. And that's what my new book is about.
So you've been helping to rescue Uyghurs from countries bordering China. Yes, but that was a, that's a, you know, you make promises when you're out there doing things like this. Mm. And uh, I had to, I, I felt I had to deliver on promises. But to, the reason I was out there in the first place was to, there's only one way to figure out how many people are disappearing per year. And that was to interview people who'd, who'd gotten out of the camps. Mm. And those people are, we only have 10 of them right now in the West, in America, in UK, in Europe, where they're easily accessible. Uh, most of those came from Turkey. They'd slipped through from Turkey over time and it took them a while. 10. This is an enormous population we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So it's very different than the Falun Gong situation that way. China learned from the Falun Gong persecution not to let these people ever get passports and let them get out at all. In fact, they've been doing the opposite. They've been pulling them back in from uh, Central Asian countries in particular, uh, and when they can from Turkey. So the only way to do this was to go where, the, where people had escaped to. And the, that place, the only place, was Kazakhstan. Right. And to get into that country, it's a, that I'll get into that story pretty heavily in, in my upcoming book, uh, I was reluctant to give away my secrets, but now I realize it's kind of like, you know what, they won't be secrets anymore for long, and you, you have to come up with new things anyway, so it's okay. But basically, the way we did it was uh, I drove into the country with my daughter uh, in a fairly elaborate scheme, and uh, we had no devices at all. So we, from an electronic standpoint, mm -hmm. we disappeared. Right. And we had a car that was uh, 2003, had no chip. You can't track it. <laughs> we, we actually, we had skis on the car. <laughs> so we looked totally like tourists, like idiotic mm -hmm. tourists, actually. We had books on the snow leopard, and uh, we said we were going to Mongolia. We had Mongolian hats. And Did you have some kind of disguise? No, nah, well, grew a big white beard, okay. but you know, that's it. Uh, you know, no, I, I think, the point was we were coming through the truck routes, a, a route that only is used by like truckers and what uh, there's a sort of motocross thing. Mm -hmm. uh, once every year, uh, bikers would sometimes go through this this kind of way. Uh, it's it's considered kind of a sporting thing to do, and uh, they actually go into uh, they go to a bunch of the Central Asian countries. So this is the way they go. In other words, they go through the ferry in the Caspian Sea from Baku. <laughs> to, to into Kazakhstan. And then it's a long drive. It's the length of the United States to get from that mm -hmm. area of Kazakhstan to Almaty on the other side. And that's what we did. We did it in the winter. Uh, the roads were terrible. They don't plow them. Uh, we had four-wheel drive, but it wasn't that great. And we had a map and a compass. It was uh, actually pretty, uh, somewhat harrowing at times, mm -hmm. but uh, God bless, nobody was hurt. Uh, nothing too terrible happened. We just had some uncomfortable moments. Uh, uh, my foster daughter held up pretty well. Uh, she freaked out a little bit when we uh, down in, near the Aral Sea. We had kind of a bad moment down there, but it was okay. Uh, it was very, very tense um, stuff. We got stopped a lot because the police are looking for handouts for money. Uh, and they'd always threatened to take me in. And I knew if they took me in, 
that was the end of the investigation because mm -hmm. they would book me. They would find out who I was and it would, it would be over. The whole point was I was, was not worried about us. Have you ever felt in danger doing all this kind of no, stuff? No, no, that is this, this was dangerous, but not really for me. In other words, if I get thrown in prison for a night or two, let's be honest, my next book sells out 10 times, 100 times what I get right now. Seriously, I mean, one night in jail can do an amazing, gives you incredible street cred. Now, I'm not saying I was looking forward to it. I wasn't. I would I'd be a liar if I said that. Of course, I didn't want that. But at some level, I could reassure myself that that was true. And I'm an American. I'm also a British citizen. Uh, somebody's going to come through. Although the British told me, call the Americans. They said, think of the end of Jurassic Park. Call the Americans. Don't call us. Um, the, 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 uh, no, the concern is for the people you talk to. They're the ones who can just simply die. They will disappear even if they're in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is an authoritarian state. It's under China's thumb. They do China's bidding most of the time. So if I talk to them, I'm like an infected person bringing in a plague or something. I mean, it's, it's very dangerous. And the whole point was that I had to come in and nobody really should know that I'm there. Okay. Uh, and then we had to have a, a safe house, an apartment that didn't have our name on it. Uh, where there was absolutely no way of really tracing people. We'd make sure that they came in with no devices into the house when they interviewed, uh, this kind of thing. Now, that's not the most glamorous way to do this. I was imagining driving all over the place and so forth, but really that wasn't the way to do it. The only safe way to do it was to meet, you know, have somebody meet them at a mall nearby, mm. sort of nice coffee shop, and then just sort of take them up there. Um, and that's what we did. And so we did that again and again. Uh, and there was a moment, and this is the moment I'm trying to replicate in the book. My foster daughter's not a, you know, she's an artist, she's a photographer, a computer science person. She's, she's not really interested in human rights, that's fine. But we had a lot of time to talk on the way to Kazakhstan, going from, <laughs> from Germany, uh, many, many days. And at one point she sort of said, what are you looking for here? What are you thinking you might find? I said, well, I don't know. I said, but I really like to try to establish numbers. And I said, what I'm going to ask, be asking people about is uh, who disappeared. Did they get blood tests? And who got blood tests? Did everybody get a blood test? Did they, after that blood test, did they know if it was DNA as well? It probably was. Who disappeared? And she said, well, what kind of, what would you be looking for there? I said, I'd be looking for people who, if the people disappeared, if they're about age 28, then... Um, that's pretty clearly organ harvesting because there's, you know, we know people are taken early on when they're 18 to go off and work in factories, uh, this kind of thing, or sometimes for sexual slavery. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why people might get out of the camp early. And so, so we get into Almaty and the very first interview, just a very ordinary woman. She said, yeah, I was in the camp, uh, this camp. I know everyone was from a different camp every single person I interviewed. And she said, yeah, there were some, some women who can't, disappeared. It was after a blood test, about seven days after. And um, I said, well, you know, what, these women have anything in common? Or what did she said, what was their age? She said, they were all about 28 years old. Mm -hmm. And my daughter, who's serving tea, you know, just sort of 
literally drops it. I mean, it was like the movie. She sort of drops the tea, you know, because it was like she was seeing a magic trick. It was like, how did he do that? To me, it was not a surprise. The continuity in this uh, organ harvesting is very strong. We don't have to take my word for it. The Chinese are very clear about this. They say they're not doing enough transplants. They say 40,000 isn't enough. They should be doing 60,000. They're to my number. Uh, so this was a fairly simple, if you like, trick. But, you know, over time, I was able to establish I spent a lot of time sort of saying, look, look, give me some other reasons why these women might have been taken. Mm. I, I didn't talk about organ harvesting. I just said, what are the, you know, are these women beautiful? Are they good looking? Uh, are they sexually attractive? I'm sorry to ask this question. And uh, this another, there's another woman. She says, no. I mean, she says, it's, it's rude to say this about anyone, but these women were not very good looking. Mm -hmm. I said, well, do they have anything in common? She said they were healthy. So, you know, this was something we saw. Uh, again, any, I mean, it was something, it was a very clear pattern. And what was striking about it, as opposed to Falun Gong, for example, which was kind of all over the place in terms of the numbers, this was very clear. It was 2.5 to 5% of the population of the camp goes missing every year mm -hmm. of that age group, in that age group, you know, 25 to 35, right in there. That means if you accept that there are a million people in the camps, and that's a very reasonable number, that's 25,000 a year. Mm -hmm. That can sustain 60,000 organs easily or more, okay? You can certainly pull, you know, as I said, 25,000 tripled three times, three organs taken out of each person, that's 75,000. Uh, that makes sense to me as a number, but it's not, I wasn't aiming for it. It's simply what the results were. Mm. Uh, now, there were some outliers. There was one guy who said, uh, I don't remember anybody disappearing. And I said, really? You're in your camp? And he said, well, none of the Kazakhs disappeared. And I, uh, he's Kazakh. And uh, I said, well, what about the Uyghurs? He said, I only care about the Kazakhs. And so, you know, it's like, okay. He's a great guy, actually. He's a very funny guy. Um, Lovely guy. The, I love the witnesses. I mean, the Kazakh witnesses were interesting because it was a very different challenge. Falun Gong has an agenda, a stake in what happens to Falun Gong. And that is, only, that is natural and it is appropriate and it is, it is good that they have that. But it makes it difficult to interview them. And often I'd have to spend 12 hours with a witness to sort of get past what they thought I should know to get to what mm. just their own story, you know. And I'd sort of be sitting there like a psychiatrist who's with a, you know, we're, no, we're not finished with the session. They sort of be looking at me like, okay, we're done now. And I'm kind of like, you know, let's, let's keep going. The, with the Uyghurs, uh, there's also obviously an agenda. I mean, how can there not be? Everybody in China has an agenda. And how could you not? How could you look at your own daughters being raped and, and so forth and not have an agenda? Of course you do. But the Cossacks probably the least because they are accidental. They are Turkic origin, just like the Uyghurs. And because really what's going on in uh, the Uyghur crackdown is, is very different. It's, it's, it's really not even a, a religious crackdown. That's a myth. It really has very little to do with Islam. It is racial. Okay. This is based on the fact that Uyghurs are truly different than Han Chinese. Okay, and we know this because the Hui people, for example, are, are, are uh, also Islamic. They're Islamic people. And in fact, they're very strict Islam in some ways, uh, 
compared to the Uyghurs. Uh, but they don't really get to thrown in the camps, or at least I found no evidence of it. Mm. Uh, why? Because they speak Chinese and they look Chinese. Okay. The Uyghurs do not, and neither do the Cossacks. And so the Cossacks would get thrown in too, but they're kind of accidental, which is why they kind of get out too. They often aren't, aren't persecuted at the same level. I didn't run into Cossacks disappearing for organ harvesting, that kind of issue. But they often have relatives in Kazakhstan who could bring some pressure, and that's how they'd make it across the border at some point. Maybe a large bribe would be paid. Who knows? Uh, it was hard to determine how these things happened, and I did not want to spend all my time on escape stories, if I could avoid it. Their agenda is just to see. You know, when you are in these camps, and this is different also than Falun Gong. Falun Gong, people, it was a more traditional situation. You're in a prison camp and so forth, but you have conversations. You could talk about things, and they often did. And they'd often try to talk to the guards. And in fact, some practitioners would claim that they even convinced the guards. Well, well there is a case, actually, of a, a practitioner who convinced a, uh, a member of the 610 office, the sort of secret police, to kind of come around and change, and he did. And I interviewed him extensively for this book, and there's a, most of a chapter on him. Mm. Uh, and it's a very interesting story. This doesn't happen now. There is surveillance everywhere, in the toilets, everywhere. Cameras, peak vision cameras, all, all distributed throughout these camps. Peak vision is familiar to you. You yeah. would yeah. use it in Britain, I understand it. And uh, look, nobody can say anything. You listen. And you can say, pass the wrench, please. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. But that's about it. Uh, is there more toilet paper? I mean, you know, these these are sort of like... It. This heightens, just like somebody's starving to death, this heightens uh, the senses. You know, when you're starving to death, your eyes get better. Your, your sense of smell increases. It becomes very sharp. Your ears even, your, your hearing improves because you're hunting. And similarly, when you're kind of blacked out from any kind of real human contact, yet surrounded by humans, you notice things that you wouldn't ordinarily notice, the most subtle things about human behavior and, and, and your environment, uh, where every camera is placed, the thickness of a wall. Uh, but these are important pieces of evidence uh, that people didn't, we didn't really have about the camps initially. We had satellite photos. We have stuff we scrape off the internet. We have uh, a Polyboro source who's handing things to Adrian Zentz, the noted scholar Adrian Zentz, uh, associate and, and colleague of mine. Uh, and that's all very important. But what the human, the human on the ground sensation is, is a very different thing. And again, there was no way to look at organ harvesting except through that prism. And in fact, it's very helpful for understanding forced labor, uh, uh, rape, other issues like that as well. And I intend, I am getting into all those issues in the book, although organ harvesting is still central. Uh, you know, when I was pitching this book to uh, start pitching around to some publishers, they said, this sounds like The Slaughter too." And I said, yeah, that's a great title. <laughs> you know, I said, why not? But, you know, uh, sequels are often better than the original. Okay. Um, I don't have any problem with it being seen as The Slaughter too. This issue... 
is still central. And uh, all I can say is that we've seen uh, some incredible developments in the last year. So in this field, so. Do you think that um, COVID make a big, made a big difference to how people see the, the Chinese medical community and to affect your work? I'd like to take credit for what's just happened in the past six months, over two to a year, uh, but I can't. I have to, all the credit goes to the Chinese Communist Party, okay, for uh, handling COVID the way they did and probably creating the probably creating it in, in the Wuhan lab in the first place. Uh, it, the, the evidence seems fairly clear on that now. I think that's the, uh, you know, we're sort of 90% there. Uh, recent report, I know Toy Reid really well from the State Department, who's one of the main researcher behind the new COVID reports that are coming out of Rubio's office. I've known him for many years and uh, his work is very solid. Yes, this was created in the lab. Uh, it was not an accident of bats and so forth. No, I don't believe that they, the Chinese purposely released it on the world. I do believe that once they released it, I think then the evidence becomes very clear that they uh, decided this is not going to be a China-only problem. <laughs> and this is going to go to Italy first off. It's going to go to a lot of places. We're certainly not cutting off those flights. We know this. They decided this is, we don't want China being blamed. You know, they lied about everything. In fact, there's some evidence I'm going to be putting out in my book that the COVID first appears as early as June 2019 because the ECMO sales, which is used for live organ harvesting, suddenly switched to ventilators. That's the auction in the auctions uh, records that I have. Mm. You know, that's a little bit of circumstantial evidence. There could be other ways to explain it. But the bottom line is, yeah, this was humiliating for the medical community. The medical community had to go along with a lot of lies here. Chinese lies, first of all. Uh, World Health Organization lies. Uh, the idea that Taiwan was not allowed to uh, raise, uh, uh, you know, set, set off an alarm mm. that the world was allowed to look at. I mean, they, they said in December that Taiwan, the Taiwan medical establishment was saying there's something going on. There's like some kind of pandemic style, some sort of SARS virus out there, which is having an impact. Of course, they were right. Now we're pushing it all the way back to uh, September. I th as I say, I think it'll end up as June, but th it wasn't just that. I mean, there was the dilly-dallying about masks, okay, the, the back and forth over masks. You know, don't wear a mask, do wear a mask. <laughs> Ridiculous stuff. By the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, they made, they made a a mockery of the whole thing. Uh, it was very difficult. I mean, I was very sympathetic as somebody who's missing a spleen. I was very worried about COVID um, and getting it could, I felt, had the possibility to kill me. Uh, and I was even sympathetic to the first lockdowns in America and in the UK. But then I was sort of like, well, wait a minute, weren't you, you know, if I'm the problem, why don't I just isolate myself? instead of all of society isolating themselves, because I don't think this is really that deadly. Of, look, I think a lot, of, a lot of surgeons have the same idea. And this explains, uh, but they're getting uh, tremendous uh, cynicism from their patients now, disrespect. Mm. Uh, that's not really appropriate. They were just trying to go along with the, you know, the policies of the time it's, it's left a terrible mess.
So I don't believe that our work did that. It led to this this big shift, which we're now seeing in uh, the consciousness uh, over this issue in the medical world. I do believe we did one thing right. And I think a lot of people can stand up and take a bow for this one. Uh, following on practitioners who did research and so forth, the Uyghurs I worked with who took great risks on the ground in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, you know, Uzbekistan. The, we laid the groundwork so that once somebody said, okay, we're going to dig here, it was all there. All the evidence was there. And that is what has happened. So in September uh, last year, the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation, the most powerful group other than the TTS, <laughs> because heart and lung transplant doctors are considered to be just a little above kidney and, right. and, uh, kidney and liver transplant doctors. I know that's not fair, and I shouldn't even be saying it, okay? But you know, you can blot that part out. But you know, <laughs> but it's a little bit true. They, they, they have a higher, a, a, a very, they're kind of at the forefront. This was a later, it's not just that they're heart and lungs. It's, it, the, the, that was the latest development of transplants. Uh, it's, it's, it's the most, uh, uh, we've been doing kidneys for a long time. Livers followed and then heart and lung. They came out in September and said, academic boycott. Chinese, mainland Chinese can no longer put articles in uh, or apply for articles in the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantation. That's very significant. I mean, it may seem like a small thing, but it's actually a very big thing. It's something we've been fighting about for a long time, is what are they doing publishing in our journals? Mm. Okay. Uh, that academic boycott was a shot across the bow, saying we do not trust China. And they were using the word China. They were not just saying we don't want anything where we don't know the sourcing of art. No, no. China specific. Uh, this was followed by the uh, Stop Organ Harvesting Act of 2023 going through the House, the House of Representatives. Uh, I believe uh, 219 to 2, I believe. Uh, the vote was uh, very solid. Now, that act basically prevents Chinese transplant surgeons from visiting the United States. Uh, it does attempt to sort of identify associates of the organ harvesting or the, the sales process uh, in globally. In other words, the sort of uh, trench coat guys of some sort. And uh, finally, it, it calls for further research. I'll, I'll believe the further research part when I see the funding. But uh, leaving <laughs> the final one aside, uh, I'm not cynical about the bill. I think it's a terrific, uh, it's a, a, a great step forward. There's a very similar bill in the Senate. I believe it will come to, it will come to a vote. I believe Biden will have to sign this mm. into law. Uh, why did they do that? Why now? Because the doctors. The doctors were always holding up this process. You know, congressmen are not stupid. They, they, they understand two things. They understood something about the Chinese Communist Party, which the doctors didn't, okay, uh, because they've been looking at it for a long time. And this, I'm not talking about Democrats or Republicans. Both of them have experience with the, with the duplicity of the party. Uh, but they also recognized that the doctors held the Trump card all along, the Trump cards. The doctors 
And if the doctors wanted to engage with China and try and fix it this way, they felt like they couldn't really push a bill like this through. Uh, they wouldn't really have the full credibility. When you had the heart and lung transplantation making a stance like that, it was a flare in the night sky over mm -hmm. Capitol Hill, and that's when they pushed the bill through. Now then what happens is I was in Taiwan when I got the uh, notice that they, the heart and lung transplantation at their annual conference wanted me to give the keynote address in Denver in April. And uh, when I first heard that, I thought it was sort of like I was misreading things. It was like, well, you know, I'm a velociraptor. Why are they inviting me to their convention? I, you know, I'm a, maybe a Tyrannosaurus. I don't know. But I mean, what do they think I'm going to say here? And I was assured because it was Jacob Levy, who was one of the people who had been really pushing this. Uh, he said, no, Ethan, they want you to just go through the whole thing. You've got 30 minutes. And I have never worked so hard on 30 minutes of my life getting that PowerPoint together. Mm. Uh, I felt it was the most consequential and important 30 minutes of my life because I was finally speaking to this audience, uh, which had been initially so skeptic, and suddenly you're speaking to 3,600 screaming fans, I mean, transplant surgeons, okay, uh, you know, about this issue. And I had to bring in everybody's work Everybody had, all the work had to be brought to the table. So yeah, I opened with my own work on the Uyghurs early and then, you know, you know, Emperor Totti and people like that and what happened to the Uyghurs when they were first harvested on a very small scale. We went into the Falun Gong period, which obviously the research is very robust and overwhelming almost really, because we already have the China Tribunal has come out with their major study on this and absolutely said this is, we have no questions about this. Uh, it's probably the best book to read as a sort of a backgrounder to this, of anything that's been published at this point. A lot of new witnesses in there. And then finally I ended with my findings from Kazakhstan, okay, which is saying this is current, this is going on. Okay, that is the point. So we cannot sort of slough this off as an issue and well, they've solved it since then. I did add one thing which I think is important and I would really like people to pay attention to because um, but it's, it's particularly applicable to the doctors. I said, you, you created this. You are the ones who moved first back in September. And because you've done that, you have the whip hand for a minute. You've taken the central position. You have the power to control the way this issue moves forward. Uh, and I said, and you're going to be met with a temptation. It's, I predict this. I don't usually make predictions, but I'm going to predict this one. You will be met with a temptation very shortly from the Chinese side. They're going to say, we have this new thing, AI. It's going to solve the whole problem. You see, when somebody straps somebody onto an ECMO machine in AI, it will have to know the person's name, their medical condition, everything about them. AI is going to unite us all from womb to tomb. We are going to be able to follow everything. And you won't even need to have whistleblowers anymore because AI, artificial intelligence, will pick up anomalies. If there are some unusual anomalies in the Chinese transplant system, it'll tell you about them, right? Now that is a very appealing idea. 
it's very appealing. It's something China wants to push very hard. And the only problem really within it is that who's winning this AI race right now? Well, actually we were, but we're already starting to clamp down on AI because we're pretty nervous about the implications of AI. The Chinese are going full speed ahead. And do you think that they will be able to come up with an AI system which can lie? I think so. I think they'll use AI so that we'll never again get a statistician saying this is a perfect parabolic curve. That's never going to happen again. Next time it'll look like this, okay? Uh, it's going to look normal because AI is good at that, at creating normal looking things. In fact, it's better at that than picking up anomalies. It's not very good with anomalies. So, you know, when you look at that and you're going to say, that's your temptation. Yeah. Hold chorus, you know? Uh, and, uh, I really see this as, again, COVID did that, not me. Okay. COVID led us to this day, this perfect day. Okay. Uh, you know, the party led us to this day. I, I, that's, that's where we're, we are at. I'm not saying everything's wrapped up in a, in a tight bow. It's not, this is, there's no Hollywood ending here, but, uh, how did Winston Churchill put it? It's the... It is not the, uh, it is the end of the beginning. It's not the beginning of the end. Uh, we're, at, we're at sort of a stage where you can see something mm. taking place. Uh, and I have never seen Washington so united uh, as uh, this last year over China. It is literally the only thing that unites the, the two parties. Mm. It's like the only thing they'd ever agree on. It's like, what do you want for dinner? Not Chinese. You know, it's like, okay, whatever. Uh, this is significant, uh, you know. And 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 uh, and my only concern is in the field that will stop doing this, the kind of research that's necessary. Because I can't, for example, go back to Kazakhstan now. And I did save people, some uh, family. Uh, it's a guy I interviewed, and I pulled him out of there with uh, uh, Connor Healy of IPVM went in and literally took them out of Bishkek in a single night, got them on a plane, bought the tickets an hour before the flight left with bad internet and got them on a plane to Istanbul. And I took over from Istanbul, it took a hundred days. We finally got them into the U.S. with the permission of Homeland Security and State Department and everything. Uh, we did that simply because he was a great witness and it's the first intact family to make it into the United States from the camps. Mm. Uh, lovely family. Uh, it was it was a kind of Christmas miracle. It was a wonderful thing. Uh, you know, since then, there have been some other great saves. Uh, Bob Fu was very involved in this, in, in moving these people around. Uh, he had to pay for a lot of tickets because we did a kind of crowd movement. He literally said, here's the people are Christians, they're all traveling together. And we did that, and it was a great way to get people past the border. Mm. You can't use it again, so I don't mind talking about it. Okay, <laughs> you can only use these tricks once. Um, but the problem here uh, is the, the, the darkness that we look at is now, you know, whether the Chinese will go and invade Taiwan or blockade Taiwan. Mm. Uh, because if they do that, you can bet any Falun Gong that are still in the uh, Laogai system 
are going to die. And maybe all the Uyghurs will die. There are nine crematoriums which have been built. They are mega crematoriums, 900 meters away from a transplant hospital surrounded by a camp of 33,000 people. It's an Aksu. Uh, we are looking then at a, at a Holocaust level event. Uh, we really are. Uh, right now, it's not. We're looking at this culling, culling event. Um, not to mention what will happen to the Taiwanese people, of course. And that is significant as well because there's a theory out there that in the party right now, it's a fashionable theory that 10% of the Taiwanese population is Japanese blood. Right. And that is why they're not joining the motherland. And what they've just done is given us not only a racial, uh, a new racial rationale for what they intend to do, but they've also given us a number. Look, 10%, that is the number you can expect to disappear from Taiwanese society if they invade. Uh, they usually stick by these numbers. Uh, so I think that that is pretty cataclysmic. And I know that people may be listening to this may have different views about Ukraine, for example. And I think it's justified to have all kinds of views about these things. They're, they're hardly, this isn't a, a science. But you must understand that when I was living in Taiwan, every day that was a good day for the Ukraine was a good day for Taiwan. And I've been living in, the, in Taipei for the last seven months. That is how you feel over there, okay? This is the same, from their perception, this is pretty much the same war, okay? And uh, so I think people should, uh, I, I would ask that people, even if they don't like Zelensky or his style or something, you know, the aspects of the, the manipulation of the Ukrainian situation, and I, I find it tedious sometimes too, they have to consider this. What is the effect on Xi Jinping? Because if he makes that decision, uh, you know, it might be good for writers like me, but it's not good for anyone else. Mm. Uh, and uh, from all accounts, he is not the brightest guy, uh, Xi Jinping. This is contrary to what people may think. Uh, he's not terribly bright. And he apparently, I don't think he's asking the right questions of his own generals. I don't even think he's sort of looking at what just happened to Russia and going, are you sure you guys have, you know, vehicles that really work and, and all these ships are really, really, you know, what you say they are? He's not doing that, uh, as far as we can tell. And so this is a very, very, very tense situation that we're handing off right now, uh, the new generation. I'm not gonna be around that long. Uh, we're going to be, you know, working, uh, and that's that's a, another thing that gives me some hope is people like Matt Robertson are much younger that's going to be working on these issues. But we also, I would have one last thing. I, uh, if the if I have a legacy, it is keep what we think of as field research alive. Do not think that we can just sit there and scrape the internet, particularly with AI coming into the internet. I mean, it's really gonna be more fakes than anything else now. The internet's kind of ruined, okay, in a way. It's, I mean, it's okay as a communication device and this and that. But as a, as a source, as a well, as a well it's, it's contaminated. Mm -hmm. There's a dead animal down in there now. 
I wouldn't drink from it really that much. And we, just like we're now after the pandemic, getting back to being in the same room with each other and, and all that, which I really prefer. It's great to be back in London, for example, uh, and without masks. We need to get back to this too. We need to get into the point that human beings see things in these troubled places. Uh, and we shouldn't be discrediting what they see. The BBC may want to ignore everything as long as it comes from a human being, which is exactly the opposite of how any journalistic operation should conduct themselves. But that is their position for now. We have to get back into that. And it doesn't mean that any single witness should have to answer all your questions, okay? Just like I'm not the only person on, on British thought leaders. Uh, the, the point is, you know, we have, they can answer something. Uh, and we have to really respect that, that they're taking huge risks for their families themselves, okay? Uh, for their families, any loved ones they have. Uh, that was one of the reasons why we pulled that family out was because they had no family in China, okay? This is very unusual. Father had no family in China. He's, he's Kyrgyz, actually. Kyrgyz ethnicity. And only the wife had some family in Kyrgyzstan. But it's the very, they may get questioned, they may have some repercussions, but it's nothing like what somebody would experience in China. Mm. Uh, the Falun Gong practitioner families, uh, the, the, the kind of terrible things that happened to them, and uh, what happened to the Uyghur families as well. When can people expect to see your new book? Uh, I'm writing it now. I could use more, a little bit more money, so I don't have to worry about money. But uh, that's another story. We can we could leave that till some other time. The uh, no, I'm, I'm I'm working on it now. I, I finished. Um, there is an example of it out right now on the web. Uh, it's a trustworthy place. Real Clear Politics put out uh, uh, really a truncated version of my forced labor chapter, uh, which is not the major theme of the book, but it's a pretty good chapter and it's called the, the road to freedom of religion in China or something like that. But I'm calling it, you just Google my name. And my original title was the road to slavery. Uh, so it really is about slave labor and, uh, and it's an oral history of Uyghur forced labor. And it really is. It's mainly my witnesses doing the talking. These are accounts. There are accounts of uh, child labor. There are accounts of deaths on the job. It's a pretty powerful uh, history. Uh, short, but I think very punchy. And uh, you can get a, a, a feeling for what I'm doing there. As I say, I don't think this is the number one chapter in the book, but it was a great warm-up chapter for me. And uh, I, I want to answer you truthfully there. The reason this book has been so late, I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is, first of all, the research was very hard to do. But the major reason, uh, I'm not as tough as I might seem. You know, when I went to, I was in Tajikistan for a couple of months just trying to examine how many Uyghurs had been taken back to China. And I have never experienced an investigation as, as tough as that. It's a very authoritarian state. Mm. And we were being watched. And uh, the only way I got out of that was getting very drunk with the chief of police in uh, Dushanbe. Uh, he didn't drink. I, I, I did all the drinking. 
It's like a truth medication, okay? Uh, it went well. But it was a very, very tense thing. And, you know, when I got back from it, um, I just couldn't do anything for a while. You know, I, it was very hard to decompress. I broke a lot of teeth. I fractured a lot of teeth just out of tension. I think of myself as, they say the, uh, the will is strong, but the flesh is weak. I think that's right. I'm not a guy who scares that easily, but there's a part of me which does. There's something in me which is afterwards really feels it. So they call it post-traumatic stress disorder. They can call it what they like. All I know is I, I just kind of couldn't write for a while. That's over now. I feel a lot better now. It's, it's Things have improved. But uh, and to some extent, these things never completely leave you. But... Uh, uh, Look, everything has its costs. Um, and I, I say that with full knowledge that people will have to go out and take these kinds of risks. Uh, we're, we're just not going to get the information otherwise. And uh, that we really, really do have to keep the human and the human rights here. It cannot be this abstract thing. It cannot be a business where you sit down and say, you know, I am solidarity with you people. It's like that's not going to do anything. You, you, you want to be in solidarity? Come find the, the victims. Come find the people who can give you something, the information. They want to tell those stories. Okay? It's the only thing sometimes that gives their lives meaning. A, a terrible, that gives their terrible lives some meaning. Okay? Their, their families have been ripped away from them. Uh, I, I talked to a man who'd been in jail for 12 years, off and on, one bad job after another. It's not the worst story I've ever heard. But you know, that man, when, he, when we reached the end of the interview after four hours, or I decided it was over, and he was just like, can you do this? It was sort of like, how could you do this to me? He was like, we were just getting going. And I realized this is the loneliest man I've ever met. Mm. I mean, he's just, he's going to die very soon of some infection of his kidney or his liver or something because of uh, the chemicals he worked with. He's got nobody. This is the future for these people. And I, I say this with a lot of respect. This is a very intelligent man. Uh, his life is ruined. When he's talking to me, it gives his life meaning. He, me recording his voice, it's in that article, gives his life something. We really can't get away from that. That's how you stand in solidarity. Uh, this is the work we have to do going forward. So, Ethan Gumman, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. <laughs>